while we're waiting for your miracle because it's going to happen. We pray these things in your name. Jesus, the God of miracles. Amen. So just a, a correction on Megan's prayer. It's great worship and a decent message. That was really good. Um, you know, this is, uh, <coughs> it's been very odd as I <coughs> think about uh, L-A-M, life after Mark. <laughs> you like that? This is week 79. Next week will be our conclusion. But in reality, this week is the last message on a text that we know was written by Mark. Next week's passage, there's some questions about who wrote it. We know it wasn't Mark, but we're going to talk about it anyway in our concluding message, the conclusion of Mark next week. But this week, I told you last week, it was kind of like Grace Life Easter. We're talking about the resurrection. This is week number 79 in our series, and I've entitled it Faith Needs Help. So a couple questions for you. What, what impact should knowing a lot about Jesus, I mean like a lot, have in your ability to trust his promises. <clears throat> there should be no more doubt, right? I mean, we have studied the life and teachings of Jesus through Mark for over a year and a half. 79 sermons, every chapter, every verse. And we discovered 100% verified history. We've studied undeniable fulfilled prophecy in the Mount of Olives at the Olivet Discourse. We have encountered spiritual truths that have undeniably inspired our hearts, captivated our mind and our thoughts. And with all we have learned, your ability to believe in the promises of Jesus are no doubt the strongest they've ever been, right? I mean, because of all the knowledge that we've amassed in this decent series our faith should have never been stronger than it is today. There's no doubting whatsoever, do we? we? None of us. No doubting. By now, all our actions, all our habits, all our understanding of the world and our money and our relationships, we have mastered it all through the eyes of faith today, have we not? Everything is firing on all cylinders for us individually. None of us are struggling anymore with any measure of doubt or wavering. We don't struggle with loving this world anymore. We are loving Jesus a lot more than we did 80 weeks ago, right? I doubt it. <laughs> I mean, how could we struggle after all we've learned? Well, the reason is, is because knowledge and experience aren't enough to believe in Jesus. They aren't the only ingredient. If it was, if knowledge, <coughs> excuse me, and experience was enough, Peter would never have denied Jesus three times. Judas would not have been so bold as to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The apostles wouldn't have run away scared when Jesus was arrested. Peter, James, and John would have never argued over who's going to be the first in heaven. None of them would have been waiting for Jesus to defeat Rome. And even the most loyal followers of Jesus, you know who that was, it was the women. Even they couldn't still escape doubt and fear 
just on knowledge and experience alone. I mean, if that group struggles with fear and doubt, what are the chances we can overcome ours? Let's look at the passage today about the resurrection, Mark 16. <coughs> Excuse me, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. Well, wouldn't we all be? And he said to them, <coughs> do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Well, he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, <coughs> for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So let's look at the history of this passage. I want to talk about these loyal doubters. That's how I describe these women. They're loyal. <coughs> They're here when everybody else is, is hiding, even the men. And Mark details for us in this short passage on the resurrection three examples of how these precious, faithful women couldn't still yet believe in the promise of the resurrection. But we do see here they are definitely honoring Jesus. And it's a filthy task. I mean, these are loyal women with Jesus from Galilee, the very beginning of his ministry. They've been there through the crucifixion, the arrest. They're all still loyal, but they are reeling. They are hurting. <clears throat> They watched Jesus' death, and now early Sunday morning, they return to the tomb to complete the burial process. This is the start of the third day since Jesus died, so you understand why this task would not be fun. It was a hurried burial. The women want to make sure Jesus is buried properly in a fully honoring way, and so still, even though he's dead in their mind with tremendous affection for Jesus... <clears throat> they want to display their affection with their own burial spices. It'd be kind of like bringing flowers to a tomb. But because of Sabbath, they couldn't go there. They had to wait since you're not supposed to touch a dead body on the Sabbath. But them being back the next day on the third day speaks to their character, their affection, their loyalty to Jesus. They have seen and heard everything. They know who he is. But even this attempt to honor Jesus assumes one important thing, notice, that he has not kept his resurrection promise just yet. This was a promise, if you remember, even the Sanhedrin knew because they had set the guard in front, they had sealed the tomb and set soldiers in front to guard it to make sure nobody could steal the body. I mean, if they really did believe in the promise of the resurrection, you will see later on in this passage, they would have never even gone to the tomb at all. They would have gone straight to Galilee because he said that's where he would meet them. <clears throat> More on that later. And they noticed this immovable obstacle. Getting closer, they realize they failed to plan ahead for one important thing, the removal of this massive stone that has sealed the tomb and that is heavily guarded. This is a rational, rational understanding doubt, correct? I mean, everything's gone wrong in the last 72 hours. 
The stone is just one more thing. Great, we forgot the stone. We want to honor Jesus with these spices that we bought, but we can't even get in. It's probably very emotional. Their assumption is, they assume the grave will still be sealed, Jesus is still dead inside, and they won't be able to get to him. This stone they see is what? It's an earthly obstacle too big to overcome on their own. That's a second evidence of their doubt, a symbol of their unbelief. The first is they bought spices to anoint him. The second is they assume the stone is still there and they can't move it. And they come to a faithless conclusion when they get closer. They can tell the stone has been moved. And their first response is, wow, Jesus is resurrected, right? No, Matthew tells us their first response was they were afraid someone else had overpowered the guards rolled back the huge stone, and stolen Jesus' body. That, in fact, is an irrational conclusion, actually. I mean, between the massive stone and the Roman guard, it would have taken a company of soldiers to overpower them and move this big rock. But ironically, it's easier to believe that happened than to believe in the resurrection. I mean, if anyone could trust the resurrection promise of Jesus on their own, it should have been these women, but they can't. There's three evidences of it in this story. Do you see that? They're preparing to see someone who's dead. They assume he's still in the tomb. And when he's not there, they assume someone has stolen his body. These are great women. Loyal, faithful, yet doubtful. I mean, right up to the last moment, before God intervenes, the sorrow and realities of their world blocks their belief. It hinders their faith. But look what God does. Look at the spiritual part of this passage. I want to talk about comfort from the Father, comforting from a messenger. First of all, there is human frailty here, is there not? Mark allows us to experience the way it is written, this resurrection from the way these women would experience through the prism of human frailty. These women show us even the most faithful need God's intervention to continually trust the promises of Jesus. See, what they believed was that they would find a dead decomposing Jesus in a tomb they would be unable to enter. But God knows as loyal as they are, <clears throat> as faithful as they are, with all they have been through, they're still going to be unable to believe without him intervening and helping. God loves them enough, and this is the part I love. God loves them enough, he won't just leave it to them to somehow figure out the resurrection on their own. Because believing in the resurrection even for these women, takes supernatural intervention, as it always does. And I got to tell you, there is one lucky angel in this story. So God, the loving Father, who stops at nothing to call and save his children, sends an angel with a message. You know, I love telling good news, don't you? Like, no, no, don't tell them. I want to tell them, right? Who doesn't, right? Especially when the person is not expecting any good news. They're just walking along. Oh, look, he has no idea what about. I'm going to tell him. 
Imagine being the angel that is selected out of all the other thousands or millions or billions of angels. Wait, you're sending me to tell the women the good news? I get the tomb gig? Yes! I wonder if all the other angels were jealous, you know? Like, you get the tomb gig? I put in for the tomb gig. I got superiority. Because the angel apparently was a young man, a young angel. This lucky angel is there. He's waiting for these women to show up. He's just ready to share and remind them what Jesus always said he was going to do. And through this lucky angel, God provides the soothing reminder, the reassurance, and the comfort that their faith desperately needed at the tomb. God knew the ladies were grieving, that they were doubtful, they were fearful. He also knew they would be alarmed when they saw the angel. And here's what he says. Ladies, why did you even come to the tomb? Why are you here? Jesus is not here. He did exactly as he promised he would. He's risen. See, they laid him here. He's not there. Here's what I would like you to do. God wants you to go tell Peter that Jesus, he will meet you all in Galilee just like he said then. Jesus made two promises. I'm going to be resurrected and I'll meet you in Galilee after. You know, I love how there is a personal message for Peter. Don't you? It's another precious, comforting intervention. Who was the guy who denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed twice? And on the third time he denied, he looked across the courtyard and Jesus saw him face to face and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Ladies, why are you here? He's going to be in Galilee. Do me a favor. Go tell Peter he's there. Even that is a precious intervention message from this angel, from Heavenly Father to a hurting, reeling, guilty-feeling uh, Peter. And why does the angel tell them all this? Because God knew they would all need to be reminded what Jesus promised and how it's all coming true. Now, I'm going to get a little bit wonky on you. Aston it's the last kind of sermon on the text that Mark wrote. So I got some Greek words for you. Some of you are going to love this. Some of you are going to like be asleep before I'm done with this, but try to stay awake. We've got coffee now in the back, so you can... <laughs> there are two particularly important words describing their response to what God does through this lucky angel. There's astonishment and afraid. Astonishment and afraid. Contextually, the angel's comforting those reminders. Those reminders astonish them. But there's this thing called a participle, a descriptor that is set apart for a reason. Are you ready? The first Greek word we're looking at is ekthambeo, to be thoroughly amazed or astounded. Now, here's what's interesting about this word. It's a very common word in Greek, ancient Greek. But this particular word, the way it is used in this sentence, in this text, is a very, very rare form of this verb participle. It's in the intransitive mode. It occurs in this form once, not just in the scripture, but in all of ancient Greek writing that's not even biblical. This mode occurs one time by Mark. 
So let me explain to you what the intransitive mode is. First, the transitive. Let me give you an example of a transitive. You know what a participle is. It's a verb form used as a descriptor, as an adjective. The transitive participle would be like this. Um, let me just think of an example. I am astonished by Tom Brady's touchdown pass. <laughs> I, and it's a subject, astonished, that's the participle, and the object that has astonished me is Tom Brady's touchdown pass. Because you guys know I love Tom Brady, always have, always will. <laughs> Let me explain to you what an intransitive participle looks like. It is set apart specifically for grammatical emphasis. I saw Tom Brady's touchdown pass, period. I am astonished. You see the difference? You ever talk like that? Listen, I saw what he did there. I saw what took place. I got to tell you, I was astonished. And so the verb form, the participle, begins and ends with the subject of the sentence. There is no object. The subject is the subject and the object. That is the form of this word astonished and amazed used here. It's an intransitive participle with no object, which is the women, they are astonished. Now, in context, we know what astonished them. It was the fact that this angel was there reminding them of the promises. But Mark sets it apart because he wants you to know this needs to be corned uh, off. Cordoned off. This is separate. This is different. They are astonished. Don't be confused. They are astonished. They are amazed, understandably, right? And the scripture says they run from the tomb to tell Peter, and now it says they are afraid to say anything to anyone else. Here's the second word, phobio. You get the word phobia from that, right? It means fear, to be alarmed with fear and urgency. This is a transitive participle with a subject and an object. This is intentional. This is why sometimes getting into the Greek construction is important. There are little nuggets. You don't necessarily need it, but there are little nuggets, little clues, little things that are really cool. This is a transitive participle. I never thought I'd get excited about participles, but I am. <laughs> this is a transitive participle with an object that describes the women who are the subject as afraid to tell anyone. What are they afraid of? Telling other people before Peter. It's an intentional, clear, undeniable grammatical divider. A contrast between astonished and afraid. These women, get this now, by design, by the text, the way it is written, Mark wants us to know these women are experiencing two separate simultaneous emotions. Astonishment and fear. Even with this news that their Jesus has conquered the grave and has kept his promise, which, by the way, they are astonished by, they still have human fear. They are conflicted. On the one hand, they're very confident and very joyful. On the other hand, they're still afraid of persecution. They don't want to tell anyone about Jesus being resurrected until they get to Peter. Peter will know what to do. This isn't trivial, church. It's a beautiful example of how a loving father, get this, this is, this, is, this is a loving father who has to constantly intervene to counteract human frailty. God wasn't going to let anything go to chance for these women when it came to their faith in the resurrection, not even an empty tomb. Isn't that just like us? 
constant spiritual conflict. Amazed by God, yet still afraid. I've got to tell you something. Saving us is really hard work. It is exhausting. Because <laughs> we are constantly in battle, in conflict between amazement and fear. Which brings me to the personal application of today's passage. Help with unbelief. So this was the Sunday sermon preview on social media this week. God doesn't just leave faith to us hoping we can figure it out. He would never take that chance with his children. So before I get into that, I want to make a contrast for you between angry doubt versus righteous doubt. You know, there are some people in this world, they live in hostile doubt fueling what can only be described as an irrational animus to Jesus and his teachings. Angry doubt that is so passionate, it inspires ignorant denial of even the historical existence of Jesus. Some people are so hateful of Jesus, they still say, ah, he never existed. Only a historical ignorant fool would say that Jesus never existed. Despite the evidence, that's what they say. Their disbelief represents the possibility of spiritual accountability. And they want to dismiss anything that is connected to eternity because if eternity is true in any way, they got a big problem. Look, we could do a whole sermon series on the science and archaeology and the philosophical truths that affirm our faith. No amount, the problem is with these angry doubters, no amount of historical proof or prophetic wonder like we saw in the Olivet Discourse. And if you really read that and understand what Jesus was predicting and how it came true 40 years later, denying the existence of Jesus is really kind of irrational. No amount of prophetic wonder can convince angry doubters. Even though it's the only logical, rational conclusion. Example, I talked about this, right? Jesus predicts the fall of Jerusalem... 37 years before it happens, with stunning detail. He says, don't run to the city. That's where everybody else runs. You run away from the city because the city is going to be under siege. Normally in those days, everybody would run to the stronghold when they were under attack. Jesus says, don't go to the stronghold. It's going to fall. That cannot be denied. It's a historical fact. It happened just as Jesus said it would 37 years earlier. I point out this contrast to this type of doubt, so that you understand it's different from the women who are struggling with doubt at the tomb. It's different. These loyal women believed Jesus was Messiah, but they still made plans as though he was dead. They had the burial supplies. They were worried about the stone. They assumed fraud instead of the miraculous. In that respect, the story of the resurrection isn't about or for angry doubters. The story of the resurrection and all of its proof is for righteous doubters, the women, and yes, us. But just like the women, we are all living in fear and faith simultaneously. I love how Paul describes it. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Paul does a great job of explaining living with fear and faith. Can you relate to the struggle? Living life trapped between vacillation, between fear and faith. I mean, why can't we just be all in? 
Wouldn't that be great? <clears throat> Why is it a continued struggle, a continued tug of war between living for the kingdom of heaven and fear of missing out, FOMO of the kingdom of the world? Or perhaps fear of the pain the world could cause us. Why do the faithful still carry our own metaphorical burial supplies? Why are we still worried about a stone we can't move? Why are we still concerned about how the world will react when we tell others about Jesus? <clears throat> See, fear and doubt creep in no matter how many God moments we have. No matter how much Jesus knowledge we amass, ask the women. They'll tell you, oh, trust us, we struggled with doubt. We live conflicting lives with our priorities, with our actions, with our relationships, with the choices we make over Jesus, conflicting lives attesting to the reality that we aren't yet fully convinced that all that Jesus promised will actually happen. I mean, we believe in Jesus and the resurrection. We know he's Messiah, but we simultaneously live in fear and not just faith. Just like the women, we need God to tell us, don't be alarmed. He's risen. Wouldn't that be great if God came to you every day with an angel? Listen, it's going to be a rough day. It's going to be hard. And I know that I'm a really good-looking young angel. Yes, I'm lucky. All the other ones still up there. I got to come to see you today. Yes, don't be alarmed of what the world does today. He's risen. Don't worry about the job. Don't worry about the election. Don't worry about the economy. He's risen just as he said he would. Wouldn't that be great? The good news is, he does. Remember the story? It was in the sermon number 41. I called it Help With Our Unbelief. Mark chapter 9. There was a dad there. He wanted desperately for Jesus to heal his suffering son. If you haven't seen it yet, go back and watch it. And Jesus says, do you believe that I can heal your son? And immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe. <laughs> then he says, help my unbelief. Isn't that us? Jesus, I believe, but please help me with my unbelief. It gets me every day. See, what God does for these women, he does for us, constantly helping us with our unbelief. And yes, our faith is imperfect, Yes, we struggle. Yes, we doubt. Yes, we are prone to wander. It happens naturally. That's why he's never going to leave it to us to figure out on our own. He would never take that chance with his children because he knows what will happen. They're not going to make it without me. See, God goes out of his way to make sure we learn how to love him like a father in heaven who is constantly giving good gifts. You know what one of those precious gifts is? The gospel of Mark. You know what the theme of Mark is? 
Jesus is Messiah and God, and you can trust him. Even here at the very end, that's what the angel's telling the women. He is Messiah. He is God. He promised you he would resurrect. He promised he'd meet you in Galilee. You can trust him. Question for you. What burial supplies are you still holding on to? Maybe you worship your 401K. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's a dysfunctional relationship. Things you're afraid to let go of because you're not sure that you can trust all the promises of Jesus. What stone are you afraid you won't be able to move? See, I want you to have confidence that Heavenly Dad will sustain your faith. I want you to have confidence that He will continue to provide you with all the help you need with unbelief. He is a loving and patient Father, consistently repeatedly reminding us that the promises of Jesus can be trusted. Once apparently is not enough with us. (laughs) And if you are his child, this is what he means when he says he will never leave you or forget about you. As a matter of fact, Paul uses the phrase saving us about 33 times. He is continually saving you assuring you. And he continually and will continually provide little and big clues. He will use tools. He will use circumstances. He will use insights. He will use experiences to sustain and renew your faith every morning. So the next time life tempts you to pick up burial supplies, the next time life forces you to worry about a big stone that you're not going to be able to move, the next time if you wonder if Jesus is really real and he did get resurrected, here's what I want you to remember. Don't be alarmed. He has risen. He's not there. And he's going before you to heaven. There you will get to see him just as he told you. Dear Jesus, we are living in constant battle between fear and faith. Ironically, we don't have to pray that you keep reminding us because you do anyway, because you would never leave it to us because we would just be prone to wander, prone to forget, prone to doubt. But yet through your glorious word, through your people, through circumstances, you continue to remind us he's not there. He's risen. You'll see him in heaven just as he promised. Lord, we're sorry that we need to be keep, keep being reminded. <laughs> but we praise you and thank you that you're a God who is willing to do just that. And I think of this story of the women perhaps the most faithful, faithful, loyal people in all of Scripture, even they struggled with fear and doubt. And just as you intervened on their behalf, you're intervening on ours right now, right here, today. Thank you for the gospel of Mark. 
Thank you for the undeniable proof that Jesus is Messiah. Thank you for the big clues. Thank you for the little clues. Thank you for the God moments. And oh, Dad, please keep them coming because we need them every day. (laughs) We need them every day. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next week, our last time together in the Gospel of Mark. If you're watching from home, I know there was a lot on the, the stream today. We encourage you, come back next week, be with us. It's going to be a precious time, one of the more important worship services in Grace Life's history, I feel like. This passage, this, this Gospel, has been um, very transformative for me personally as a theologian, as a pastor, as a teacher, and I know that it has been helpful for you. And if you've missed some, I think they're worth going back, not because I preach them, but because they're centered on the gospel of Mark. I encourage you to do that. We love you. Have a great week. If you need anything, let us know. We've got your back.